0: So I know Ken began a sermon series a couple of weeks ago called Envy, Rivalry, and Violence, where he started to unpack um, a different way of looking at the scriptures that he and I have been sort of working through over the last few months, me over the last several years. And what it is called is Girardian theory. Girardian theory. Like, what the heck is that? Well, what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to do some pretty heavy teachings. I'm going to ask you to just sort of bear with me through some of this, because you'll be hearing this um, more than once. And we're going to start by just talking about what Girardian theory is in a nutshell. So Girardian theory was developed by a French man named René Girard. And René Girard was a historian and a lit crit professor at Stanford University for decades. In fact, he just passed away last year. And so, after studying literature from around the world, he studied all kinds of literature, ancient, modern, he studied myths, he studied history, he started to notice a particular human pattern that revealed itself. And this human pattern has to do with the way cycles of violence work in our cultures. And so it starts with mimetic desire. If you were here two weeks ago, you heard Ken talk a little bit about mimetic desire. Mimetic desire just means that um, it's the kind of desire that imitates what somebody else wants. Mimetic just means imitative. Right? I want something because you want it. I want a new watch because you want a new watch. This is wired into us biologically. I was reading an advertising book actually over my vacation and I noticed advertisers know this about humans. They know that we can be driven to want things that other people want and they totally exploit us for that. Mimetic desire is not bad in and of itself. It's the way that kids learn how to be in the world. You know, so when Rachel and I were up in Minnesota last weekend, we went and met with one of her old friends, Becca. And Becca has two twin boys who are two years old. And so one of them, you know, he's with his mom, and he points to this little toy school bus that's up on a shelf. He says, Mom, I want to play with that. Will you get it? So she gets in the toy school bus. Well, you parents probably know what happens. The other kid immediately wants to play with that toy school bus. Even though they didn't want to play with it before, now they definitely do. So then there's tears, and you have to work out a way for them to share it. Well, when the second kid finally gets his turn to play with it, he doesn't even play with it, he puts it down to guard it. <laughs> plays with some other things, eats some food. That is mimetic desire in its rawest form. And it's not bad. It helps us to live in the world, but it can become bad. One, if we take on someone else's destructive desire, yep. right? So Ken preached about that two weeks ago with Adam and Eve about how Eve took on the destructive desire of a snake. The snake wanted to be like God, so then Eve wanted to be like God. And then Adam took on her desire. It can also be bad when it leads to envy and rivalry. And so Ken continued that on last week when he was talking about Cain and Abel. About how that rivalry or that desire to please God between the two of the brothers led to violence where one killed the other. So Girardian theory, what it says is that mimetic desire is in all of us. But sometimes desire can lead to envy and to rivalry in a group. And that envy or rivalry can be over anything. Resources, territory, money, power, etc. And what happens is that when that envy and rivalry starts to escalate, there is a lot of anxiety and tension then in a system, in a company, in a group, in a country. And when that tension hits a certain tipping point, it turns to violence. And if the group can't find an outlet for the violence, it will turn on itself, and it will implode. Right? If we're talking about a nation that is like civil war is what we would call that. Because oftentimes now, groups have found a different way to deal with this violence to deal with it for the sake of the group, so that the group doesn't destroy itself. And what they do is they take all of that anxiety and all of the shame and all of the different rivalries and envies going on the group, and then they focus those onto what we would call a scapegoat, onto someone who is innocent. And so you can start to see this happen when sort of a mob begins to form and there are false accusations that start to be made against a person or a group and that scapegoat can be anyone it can be anything that makes you different you know someone who is a scapegoat could be singled out for Their sexual orientation, their race, having a lisp, stuttering, uncool shoes, being an immigrant, somebody who's differently abled, somebody who's rich could end up being a scapegoat. It can be any sort of thing. And what happens then is the mob begins to coalesce, and it identifies the scapegoat, and it projects all of the anxiety of the group onto the scapegoat. And then accusations are made. And the accusations against the scapegoat are usually false. The accusations made against the scapegoat are usually false. And then the mob starts to rally around those accusations. So to give an example, between World War I and World War II, Germany was in a total economic crisis. People were infighting. They're turning on themselves because there weren't enough jobs. There wasn't enough money for food. The inflation was crazy. This was the fault of some of the Jewish people themselves. They started World War I, right? But Hitler came along, and he decided to blame all of that on the Jewish people. And they started to organize around these accusations. Right? He accused the Jews of being war profiteers, who had stabbed Germany in the back during World War I. He said that they caused all of Germany's economic problems during the 20s and 30s. But the thing is that oftentimes, the accusation that the mob is making of the scapegoat is actually true of the mob itself. Right? Scapegoats aren't necessarily innocent, but they're almost always innocent of the thing of which they're being accused. Right? So what the mob is doing, instead of owning their own responsibility, their own shame, their own anxiety, their own lack of being able to deal with the envy and the rivalry, is they take all of it and they offload it onto the scapegoat. Because psychologically, it's just, it feels better for someone else to carry that. Right? So if somebody is accusing a scapegoat of being an abuser, oftentimes you look at that, and the mob is usually the one doing the abusing. So once the scapegoat is identified and is carrying all of this projected anxiety and shame and the collective sin of the group, it is then exiled, isolated, and or killed. Right? We hand it all off to the scapegoat and then eliminate the scapegoat. And the thing about scapegoating is that it works. It actually brings peace and unity to a group. And if the group gets away with it, the sense of peace that follows it is so strong that they then create a myth about why what happened had to happen so that they don't feel guilty about what they just did to the scapegoat. And oftentimes, then the scapegoat is deified. Not necessarily made into a god, but they're treated a little bit like a saint. Like, Isn't it incredible how much they suffered for all of us? You know, I think one of the most important things that some of the Jewish people have done after the Holocaust is to not allow themselves to be deified, but to allow themselves to be made human. Right, to humanize themselves and say, no, that was not okay. Look at me, this is my story. This is how much it hurt. This is what it's done to my family. These are the repercussions. That's the importance of setting up things like Holocaust museums. It's to maintain the humanity of the scapegoat. And then the cycle, if it works, repeats itself. And in systems where scapegoating is employed by groups to relieve anxiety, there will always need to be a new scapegoat. And it might take time for that scapegoat to emerge. Sometimes it takes decades if you're talking about a country. But it does. And the thing about scapegoating, then, is it actually ultimately makes the group unsafe because it doesn't actually address the underlying sources of anxiety. So I know that's a lot, but this is what Gerard was noticing. He noticed this pattern of desire and envy and violence and scapegoating. And he saw it repeated over and over and over again in the human experience. And then he read the Bible. And he realized when he read the Bible that it was doing something different than all other pieces of literature. He realized that what it is doing is it's unmasking this system of violence, and then it gives us wisdom for how to break that cycle at various points in the cycle. Right? And when he saw that, and when he saw what Jesus was saying, he actually converted to Christianity as an adult. He was a lifelong Catholic from that point on. So you might imagine, if you know me, that the work of Gerard has actually been incredibly meaningful in my own life. And my own spiritual development. In fact, I'd been telling Ken, I was like, you've got to read Gerard, you've got to read Gerard. And he had heard of him, but now I've got him really turned on to him. So if you guys know Ken, you know that he's now like in knee deep to it. He's actually at a conference on Gerard right now. <laughs> <laughs> I went over for one day, but he, he's fully in it. And the seed for this series was actually planted about eight or nine years ago. I was studying at Fuller Theological Seminary, And I was taking this class on postmodern theology, and I picked up a series of essays, and one of the essays that I read was called The God of the Victim, and it was talking about Rene Girard, and when I read it, I just felt like my eyes had been completely open to an entirely new way of reading the gospel and of reading scripture, so I ordered almost everything Girard had written, and then I ordered things that people had written about Girard, and I realized especially looking back, that I feel like the Holy Spirit was really gifting me with a framework for being able to understand this cycle of violence. And I would say that there's no other theologian outside of those who wrote scripture themselves that has been as personal and as life-changing for me. So that's what we're starting to unpack that in this sermon series, and I think you'll be seeing us doing this a little bit more in the coming year or two. And to me, it's like a series like this is pretty timely given that we've had yet another round of violence with the deaths of Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, and then the police officers in Dallas. Right? If what we desperately need is a theology that addresses violence, a theology that gives us hope in the midst of it, so that we can come to church on Sunday and we can be reminded that we worship a God of the victims, that we worship a God that leads us on paths of righteousness and justice, who identifies with the oppressed who identifies with the victims, a God who hasn't forsaken us in this and who has not deemed us to reproduce these cycles of violence and oppression, right? But who joined our human experience so that he could show us how we can get out of that and walk a different road. So I'm gonna talk even more about Jesus next week. But the thing to know about Jesus is that he is not like other victims in the Girardian cycle. And I talked a little bit about this, I think, last Good Friday. This last spring. Jesus is not like the other scapegoats. The thing about Jesus is that he doesn't stay sacrificed, right? He truly died, but he also truly rose from the dead. And what scripture is telling us here, I think, is that God didn't kill Jesus. is that humans killed Jesus. That we took an innocent man... And we projected all of our sin and all of our shame and our anxiety onto him. When scripture says that Jesus bore the sin of the world, that's what he was doing. He was bearing our projected sin onto him. He was innocent, carrying that burden. And anyone who has been made a scapegoat will testify that that weight is almost insufferable. And there are people in our culture who have had to carry that weight for years or even decades. And so we projected our shame onto Jesus and we killed him. But the thing that scripture tells us is that God overturned our verdict, right. right? We declared Jesus worthy of death for our sake, but God declared us wrong. And in all of this, God ultimately declared the scapegoat system illegitimate. He says it does not work. The story of Jesus is told to reveal the inadequacy of our human propensity to dehumanize other people. And in doing this, what Jesus is doing is he's establishing a countercultural community of followers, followers who are committed to opting out of that system of envy and rivalry and mob mentality and scapegoating. He is calling us into the kingdom of God, committed to living in this new order, this new way of living, to say that this is possible. It's a choice that we make as humans. We make it one by one, community by community, nation by nation. And it's a choice for love and justice and for peace. But by simply committing ourselves to not scapegoating others as best we're able, sometimes that's not even simply enough in this world. I can say, okay, I'm going to do my best to not scapegoat other people. I'll do my best to not do violence to others. But it's happening all around us. I think we're invited to join with Jesus in revealing that cycle for what it is. Right? The Bible seems to say, okay, here's what this process looks like. And here are some different points where it can be revealed for what it is and where it can be stopped. Right? And the first one of those is near the beginning of the cycle. So most of you guys know here that at Blue Ocean Faith, we often talk about connection. Right? We talk about the importance of being connected to ourselves, to others, to God, and the world around us. And sometimes we've gotten a little pushback on that connection to self, because it sounds a little like, you know, Americans want to connect to ourselves. But I think that self-awareness is so vital to the Jesus path, right? Because desire in and of the self is not bad, right? Girard's theory starts with desire. It's not bad. It's confirmed as good in the Christian tradition, right? To desire what God desires. When we have desire, it leads us into healthy connection with other people, but we have to be able to connect with our own emotions and motives to recognize when that desire begins to go awry, right? To recognize within ourselves when we are envious of others, to recognize when there's a power struggle, when our interactions with people have turned to rivalry, whether that rivalry is mild or severe, right? And so the first place the cycle can be broken is in our repenting of our envy and of our jealousy. Another place that we seem to be able to interrupt the cycle, or at least to expose it for what it is, is in the scapegoating phase. Right. So in the scapegoating phase, this is when anxiety is high, rivalry is high, the mob is beginning to form. There is a scapegoat or scapegoats who are starting to be dehumanized. Right. They're starting to be prepared for sacrifice. Because to sacrifice someone or a group of people, you can't see them as fully human. Right? So there's this distancing that is going on. And this is the point when the scapegoats can creatively expose what is being done to them. And they can try to help other people recognize their humanity. So many of you know I I had to come out publicly almost two years ago. And this was actually the, the framework that I had in mind when I did it. I didn't want to. I did not want to come out in the way that I did. But I knew that if my story was told for me, that I would quickly be dehumanized. Mm. And so I made the decision to stand up and say what I had to say out loud to people because with all of the vulnerability that came with that, I knew that I was forcing people to see my humanity, to see me not as something up here or something out there or a pastor who's this or that, but I'm a human with human desires and human needs. And so that was a deliberate choice. This is also what Black Lives Matter is doing. This is what Martin Luther King Jr. did with the Civil Rights Movement. It's, look at us, we are human. Right? Probably most of you realize this. Black Lives Matter is the new Civil Rights Movement. It's committed to nonviolent resistance. It's committed to revealing the systematic oppression of some of the scapegoats in our culture. Because make no mistake, African Americans are scapegoats. As are Muslims, as are gay people, as are immigrants, and others. Right? These are our nation's scapegoats. And African-Americans have borne the brunt of that in ways that I, as a white woman, can't fully ever know. And so I thought it might be helpful for me to share that I fully ascribe to the Christian stream that is committed to justice for the oppressed through nonviolent resistance, right? And that justice for the oppressed is not a third-way issue. It's not a disputable matter in Christianity. Jesus means that you stand with the oppressed, right? And I've been steeped in this theology throughout my education. And I know I don't usually share that stuff, but I think it might be helpful sometimes for context for your pastors, right? I studied with Dr. Glenn Stassen, an ethics professor at Fuller. Glenn Stassen did his doctoral work on just peacemaking, meaning active peacemaking, with Reinhold Niebuhr. Reinhold Niebuhr, if you don't, I hear a couple people know. He was like the premier ethicist of the 20th century. Reinhold Niebuhr is the one Martin Luther King wrote a beautiful tribute to in his book Strengths to Love. He's the one that he references in a letter to a Birmingham jail. Like Reinhold Niebuhr was a tremendous influence on King. King personally invited him to come and march from Selma to Montgomery. And the only reason Niebuhr didn't because he just had a stroke and he literally could not march. Right, So this is the stream that I come from. These are my mentors and my heroes. And what they did was they studied Jesus and they studied his teaching to formulate ways for scapegoats to resist the mob. Right, and one needs to go no further than the Sermon on the Mount to see it. So Matthew 5, 38 to 45. Jesus is teaching and he says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you might be children of your Father in heaven. Now, turning the other cheek, giving your extra coat, walking an extra mile, loving your enemies, these things might seem passive. Almost like Jesus is telling people who have been persecuted that they should just allow themselves to be abused even more, right? If you get hit once, well, turn the other cheek and let them hit you again. That doesn't sound helpful. Well, that's not actually what he's saying in the context. I've actually asked Rachel, this is my wife, for those of you who don't know, to come up and help me illustrate. Yeah, you made this great. Oh, I won't actually hit her. When Jesus talks about the cheeks, he's deliberately saying the right cheek. If someone hits your right cheek, turn the other. Right? Well, in first century Judea, I'll try and not turn my back to too many people here. You would never use your left hand for anything. Your left hand is considered unclean. It's only used for unclean tasks. It's, a, it's the hand that you use, even in the Middle East and a lot of Asia today, you don't use your left hand. Because it's what you use to, like, wipe when you go to the restroom, those sorts of things. And in fact, in some of the more strict communities in Jesus' time, like in the Essene community, if you even gestured with your left hand, you had to be excommunicated from a group for 10 days and do penance. Right? So the left hand is forbidden. It's your right hand that you're using. Now, the only way for me to hit Rachel's right cheek is with the back of my right hand. Right? I can't, fizz- I mean, I can, but it's awkward. It's a backhanded slap. Now, in Jesus' time, it's really helpful, actually, that the Jewish people wrote down all of these laws very specifically. So we get these ideas. We, we actually know some things that were going on. If Rachel were my peer, my equal, as she is, actually, <laughs> if I hit her with my fist on her left cheek and I get caught, it's going to cost me four zuz. Z-U-Z. That's just a little Jewish silver coin. It's going to cost me four zuz to do that. If I hit her with my backhand, it's going to cost me 400 zuz. Because that is insulting. Yeah. Because the people you hit with your backhand are people of a lower social status than you. So that's who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to the people of a lower social status. He's saying if somebody who has more power than you, right, a master to a slave, a husband to a wife, a male to a female, a parent to a child, a Roman to a Jew, whatever the power structure is, if they're hitting you on your right cheek, there's a power difference. Turn your left cheek. And the reason you do it isn't so they can abuse you more, And so you're forcing them to say, no, you treat me like a peer. I am your equal. Does that make sense? Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) I won't take you again, sweetie. (laughs) But it's shifting the power structure to say, you don't have the power to humiliate me. You look at me in the eye. You recognize my humanity. And then he goes on to the coat. And he says, if anybody wants to sue you and take your shirt, we'll hand over your coat as well. So what this is doing is this is referencing the law, the Jewish law in Deuteronomy 24. And what it says is this. Brad, can I use you as my other example? Okay. Just because you're in front of me, you get used to it. No, please. (laughs) If I loan Brad money, Brad is supposed to give me, like usually people wore two cloaks, like an inner cloak and an outer cloak. He's supposed to give me his outer cloak as collateral. And I hold on to that until he's able to pay me back the loan. However, if Brad is really poor, like the people that Jesus is talking to, he's talking to Jewish peasants out in Galilee. If Brad is poor, he's supposed to give me his outer cloak during the day, and then at night I'm supposed to give it back to him, so that he has something warm to sleep in. So if you're taking somebody, if all they have are two cloaks, they're very poor. And so what would happen then is if Brad falls deeper and deeper into debt, and he's not able to pay me back, I might take him to court and sue him. That's what Jesus is saying. Right, if somebody wants to sue you to take your shirt, so I take Brad to court, and I'm saying, okay, I'm going to sue you for your shirt and pretty much anything else I can possibly get off of you. Well, Brad, what Jesus is saying you should do is just strip down naked. And what that does is it exposes it like, look, you've taken everything I've got. Because what we have to understand is that debt was a major social problem in first century Judea. And it was really bad by the time Jesus came on the scene. And it was a direct consequence of Roman imperial policy. There was widespread, systematic oppression of the poor, especially of the poor Jews in Jesus' day. And so Jesus is saying, look, what you should do is expose this injustice, this systemic injustice that's being done, by stripping over and handing off both of your coats. Because looking on a person who is naked brought shame, not to the person who is naked, but to the people looking at them. You've already taken everything you can from me. So I want you to feel the shame of what that is because all I have left is my body. Are you gonna take that too? Right, under apartheid in South Africa, the white authorities were looking to shut down a particular um, black shantytown. And so what the soldiers did to do that was they waited until some of the men went off to work. And then they went where the women and the children were left and they said, okay, you've got five minutes to gather your things and then we're gonna bulldoze this place. And what the women did was genius. It was very Jesus-like. They went out in front of the bulldozers and they stripped down naked. And it embarrassed the soldiers so much that they turned around and they left. And I think Jesus would have loved that. Right, what he's asking people to do here is not like roll over and be a, like a doormat. He's saying, no, creatively expose what is going on. And then going the extra mile, the Roman soldiers were legally allowed to ask subject people to carry their packs for one mile. Right, their packs weighed probably 60 to 80 pounds. And so they could go up to a Jewish person, and they could say, OK, I want you to carry this for one mile, but only one mile, because Rome didn't want the subject people to feel taken advantage of <laughs> any more than they already did, because they were already dealing with revolts. Right? They didn't want them to massively revolt. And so there were severe penalties under Roman military law if a soldier asks you to carry their pack more than one mile. And so Jesus is saying, throw them off their game. right? If you just sit there and insist on taking their pack an extra mile, it then leaves the Roman soldier wondering, why? Are you gonna report me? Are you gonna get me in trouble? Are you insulting me? Are you saying it looks like I'm not capable of carrying this pack an extra mile? What's going on? And so what Jesus is doing is inviting his listeners into the scenario where a Roman soldier is pleading with a Jew to please give him back his pack. Right, he's shifting In a funny way, like humor is one of the best ways actually to uncover this system. He's using this as humor to uncover what's going on. And so Jesus, he is a big fan of resisting oppression. He is a big fan of interrupting this Girardian cycle of violence. And sometimes these tactics work in a culture and sometimes they don't. But sometimes when they've worked, they've done major, major changes. Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Desmond Tutu, Nelson Mandela, right? These are people who have used nonviolent resistance, using Jesus as their master and teacher leading the way. And when it doesn't work, we as Christians, we are to pick up our cross and to follow Jesus and stand with the oppressed, right? That we are to refuse to be part of the mob that is crucifying the scapegoat and that we are to witness. To the hope that a different reality exists, right? That we are not subject to a sinful system of scapegoating. And when we choose to live that way and we invite other people into that, one by one, we are helping to bring about this new reality of the kingdom of God on earth. Now, I know some of us, it's hard sometimes to come to church and be like, yeah, I get that, but like, what can I do? You know, what's a practical thing that we can do? So I've actually got like seven, (laughs) okay? So the first thing is I would say you can support Black Lives Matter. Both Ken and I are saying we, we will unequivocally support Black Lives Matter. You can give them money. If you're an Ipsy resident, as Rachel and I are, um, we were alerted that you know, Black Lives Matter has put out a bunch of different um, like policy reforms that they're suggesting for police departments to help minimize and eliminate uh, senseless violence. And so, actually, Black Lives Matter and the Ipsilanti PD are meeting on Monday night to actually talk about how they could potentially implement some of these reforms, which is a really big deal. I'm going to try and go. My mom and my oldest niece are coming into town Monday and Tuesday, but I'm going to try and make it over for at least part of that. But if you're an Ipsy resident in particular, that would be something you could do. Um, the second is listen empathetically and non-judgmentally to the oppressed. All right? We had a whole sermon series—not a whole series, but. A couple of sermons on this last spring what that means is if you look at the, the Bible the Bible was written almost entirely from the viewpoint of the oppressed and the oppressed also I mean, all sorts of emotions that are allowed to sit there anger sadness accusation right the voice of the oppressed is allowed to just ring out and our job is to listen empathetically and not judgmentally to that to hear the collective cries you know it's not the place to get into arguments with people. You know, If you've got an African-American friend who has posted about how painful this last week has been, it is not the time or the place to get in and jump in and try and get the perspective of the police or whatever. Like, there's places for that conversation, but that is not the place. Right? We listen empathetically. Third, we can educate ourselves. So After I gave that last sermon, I think Jenny Piotrowski, who's over there, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, started a book group. Or she asked them for some suggestions for what are some different books we can read together that are the voice of the oppressed. So I know they've read like ta Coates. Right now they're actually reading my wife Rachel's book. Taigo. Um, it's the voices of queer Christian women. And they're gonna be reading some other things, probably the new Jim Crow and um, some other things. So you could join their book group or if you can't do that, I'm happy to give um, recommendations of books. The fourth thing is if you're majority culture, know that you're a racist. <laughs> By virtue of having grown up, in a culture with severe systemic racism, right? So I can give permission by saying, I try not to be a racist, but I know that there are parts of me that are racist and I'm learning, right? Just by virtue of the culture that we live in. And it doesn't mean I'm a bad person. It doesn't mean that I'm not trying. It just means that I have benefited from some of my privilege in ways that I have not noticed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. The fifth thing is pray. know it sounds all churchy, but it's true. We can pray for the oppressed, We can pray for the peace of our nation. And if you're inclined and if it doesn't feel traumatic for you to do so, you can pray for the police. You know, I want to say it's important that, of course, not all police are a threat. There are many who do admirable work. But we can still mourn and condemn the deaths of those cops in Dallas, which we absolutely condemn those deaths. And we can still pray for the police forces while acknowledging that there is major systemic problems that have to change, that need to change. Because it's a fact that police are more likely to use force on black people, and black people are more likely to be killed by police for no other reason than that black bodies are viewed as more dangerous than white bodies, often subconsciously. There's two studies that have come out this last month that have verified that. And so we can just say, Lord, have mercy, help. The sixth thing is actually donate goods to the Muslim immigrants. Muslims are also scapegoats. So you can see those bins over there. I think it says leave things. So what we've done is partnered with St. Clair, Um, Temple Beth Emmet and the Jewish Family Services, and what they do is they resettle refugees from Muslim countries, Syria, Somalia, and Afghanistan, largely, here in Washtenaw County. And they need apartments that are set up with goods. Right? So I think they say if you visit our website, you can sign up to buy sheets and food and blankets and detergent and things like that that they need. And what that does is that allows us to recognize their humanity, that not all Muslims are scary or out to harm us, but that we are to love them, we're called to embrace the outsider and the foreigner. And then the seventh, I'm going to make part of our two minutes of silence, because I know this was a little longer sermon. It's just simply say the names of the victims when you see them. Humanize them. Make them human in your heart. And I know that there's been several over the last few years. Right? It's Tamir uh, Rice, Sandra Bland, Freddie Gray, Eric Garner, Trayvon Martin, there's so many. But this week it's Philando Castile and Alton Sterling. And so if you'd like to and are willing, we practice two minutes of silence here at Blue Ocean usually every week. What I'm going to ask you to do is just picture Philando and Alton, say their names before Jesus, And picture their families and their friends and their communities who are mourning. And just ask that God would bring comfort and peace and mercy. We'll just mourn with those who mourn. And ask for God to have mercy on our culture. So I will let you know when those two minutes are up. Say, come Holy Spirit. We remember Philando and Alton before you. I feel like it's probably worth saying, like, for some, it can feel like this is like a very political, um, sermon. We don't usually do a lot of those here. But I just think it's worth noting that justice for the oppressed isn't a political issue, it's a kingdom of God issue. I've actually voted for three different parties in five different elections, right? I'm not easy to put in a box, so I'm not even necessarily advocating that. I'm just saying that we stand with the oppressed regardless of what that means.